you don't understand your customers. You don't, and you can take a hard look at that because the people that I interact with, a majority of marketing people do not understand their customers, especially people that are working in demand and not product marketing. Hey everyone, today we're talking with Chris Walker, CEO and founder of Refine Labs. We're taking a deep dive into B2B marketing and how to actually generate demand. Chris is really known for challenging the status quo on what B2B marketing really means. And that's exactly what we'll do today. So buckle up and let's talk branding. Hey, Chris, how are you? Steph, great to be here. Things are going awesome. Got this new studio we're trying out here in Austin, Texas. Things are going good. It's looking super sexy, <laughs> almost the Star Wars levels. But um, Chris, uh, I got to know you uh, through LinkedIn and I discovered your content and I must say I was like immediately triggered like, oh my God, why did I not know this person before? But for the people that haven't heard anything about you, could you quickly introduce yourself? Sure. Hey everyone, my name is Chris Walker. I view myself now. I identify as a entrepreneur and a CEO and a business owner and an athlete and, uh, and like to spend a lot of my time, um, whether it's working on my business. I started a company in 2019 called Refine Labs, who has fundamentally changed the game of how B2B companies think about uh, demand and overall revenue operations, whether that's the media or the distribution and the content and the analytics, um, which has been an amazing journey and something I'm super proud of. Um, and I continue to explore other interests as well, um, outside consulting with CMOs and, um, working into a whole new level, like starting to work at companies that are, you know, 2000, 5,000, 50,000 employees and, uh, get to, get to build that muscle there. Um, I spend a ton of time in data and thinking about uh, how we can use data as B2B revenue professionals to make better, more confident strategic decisions. And so I'm deeply passionate about that and working on a couple side projects with that involved as well. Um, and so that gives you a little bit of background about me and looking forward to uh, anything else we're going to talk through. Yeah, love that. I mean, maybe before we, we dive into the nitty gritty stuff, like how did you end up in this place where it, it sounds like you have a lot of like knowledge on, on this whole space, but also experience, like maybe take us back five or 10 years to Chris Walker's <laughs> first steps in this market and like what, what changed for you? It was a little over 10 years ago. I was at my first job at a company called BEA Inc. I was actually like, I uh, technically worked for the, the holdings company, parent company called Halma that was based in the UK. They would drop us into these different subsidiaries, BEA, $100,000 hardware manufacturer, complex distribution channel with OEMs and distributors and direct sales, um, uh, selling big accounts. Walmart was a big customer and people companies like that. Um, and I'm 22 years old and I'm in a lab, like coding some microprocessor for some new technology that they're building. And within three months, I was like, this sucks. Like, <laughs> it's not, I don't, uh, I don't want to be sitting here like coding microprocessors. I want to be figuring out why we're even building this in the first place. I want to be talking to customers and figure out how to innovate. I want to be out there selling this shit. Um, and so... Uh, I was lucky at that company. They provided me a different opportunity and I moved from engineering to product management. And that was the beginning of my career. 
Um, and I did product management and at several of those different subsidiaries, whether it's launching products or evaluating business, making business cases of whether to build a new product, um, or even specking out, like doing customer research, specking out the product, actually building and developing it and launching it full cycle product management. Um, and that was basically the beginning of, uh, of my career. And then, um, five, a little less than five years ago, I started my company, Refine Labs. I'd worked as a B2B professional, product management, engineering, manufacturing and operations, supply chain, demand generation, product marketing. I'd done a lot of different jobs inside of B2B companies um, and at probably like five or six. And then I started my company over the past four years. I've now been exposed to and work with more than 250 companies personally. Um, I speak to, you know, dozens of CMOs every single month. Um, I see, you know, probably 30 or 40 instances of Salesforce data every single month. Mm. Um, I understand the budgets of how budgets are allocated with companies that are $100 million in revenue and spend $25 million on marketing. I see how those budgets are being allocated across a broad set of companies. And so my uh, skills and experiences, the foundation that I had was amazing. And then the skills and experiences over the past five years have given me this compounding impact because of the amount of different situations that I've seen um, where I can recognize patterns, where I have, like, I can see the data across a lot of companies and recognize these trends and be able to call them out, where I'm able to work with companies over a period of time and solve those challenges or come up with new and innovative solutions to those challenges which then allows me to start to communicate that across the board and let other companies be able to draft off of that knowledge and experience that I have. Um, and so that sort of explains how I got here. It's it truly it, like, and people that work at my company, people that have done a job, uh, you know, gone through a path like mine will say that when you start working with a lot of companies, the learnings rapidly accelerate. And so I think it's been a massive ex accelerant to my career and knowledge and my ability to help people. Yeah. Love that journey, and it's really interesting that you really started in in like the product, and then gradually made your way over to to really going into marketing. Like, I saw this video uh, on YouTube, the five tenets that every marketer should know, and I I thought it was like a really there were some really interesting takes in there. I think it could be like a a good foundation for for our conversation. I have them listed here, so. Like if, if you could maybe elaborate a bit on the first one, like marketing is not sales. I think that's one of your strongest points to just like blast in. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. And that's the, uh, it's good that you called it out. Cause that's the only one that I remember when you mentioned the five tenants, I was like, uh, I think I remember number one, but I don't remember two <laughs> through five. I have them written down. <laughs> so don't worry. Um, <laughs> uh, marketing is not sales, but I think better framed as, uh, demand creation is different than demand capture. Even as I've written that post, it was a little while back. I think I can better mm -hmm. clarify um, because there are parts of marketing that are more like sales than, than marketing. Marketing spans across a lot of different areas, right? You host an event for a, you know five accounts that are in stage four pipeline. Whether you identify as a marketer or not, you're doing sales at that point, um, or you're at least assisting a sales action. And so I think it the, the thing that B2B companies miss is the sort of distinction between demand creation and demand capture. And back then I sort of viewed it as, you know, marketing and sales, but it's a better way to look at it is demand creation versus demand capture. Um, and just because of the way that they have historic, how historically operated and how they think about, you know, marketing and the revenue generating process overall, 
that they just lean heavily into demand capture. And then the things that they see other companies do, or they say me do, or they hear me talking about, or they hear other people talking about, or things like that, starting a podcast, thinking about running your $100,000 a month in LinkedIn ads differently than just the lead, you know, gated ebook lead gen strategy that every company does. Um, how do you go out um, and do virtual events and webinars and not be measuring it on how many leads or attendees were there? Um, how do you really like get involved in communities and you know put out content on the internet that you can't directly measure with your little like multi-touch attribution software, but makes dramatic impact on overall business results? There was a new study that came out. I'm going to write more about it because I, I love the data that they collected. But one data point was that um, 100% of links that click out of Slack get tracked as direct traffic with no referral URLs. So for instance, mm -hmm. I'm on LinkedIn and I see a LinkedIn ad and it catches my eye, but I'm not the actual decision maker, but I'm like, maybe we could use that. I'm going to click copy the link. It's going to have all the UTMs in it. I'm going to drop it into Slack and say, tag at this person. Hey, go take a look at this. They're going to click on that link. They're going to go to the place. It's going to show up as direct traffic and they're going to have no idea that it came from a LinkedIn ad. Um, and so there are like examples of that, uh, where B2B companies don't do those things because they, they don't get measured in the constraints of how they measure things today. Um, and so that's sort of like a basic understanding about how marketing is not sales. And I think that as a, as a marketer, or even as a revenue professional, me now I've sold probably $50 million in deals in the lifetime of my company. Like I, I can sell stuff. I'm a, I consider myself a salesperson mm. in some way that being able to switch your brain and be able to move based on where either your audience or that individual person that you're talking to is and be distinctly and I'm in marketing mode or I'm in demand creation mode or I'm in that mode or I'm in sales mode. I think that salespeople have a hard time turning that off. And I think that marketers, most marketers are foreign to the idea of selling anything. Um, and being able to sort of respect, like deeply respect the differences between how you act in those two different situations and be able to play on both sides, I think is a, is a massive skill set that a lot of future revenue professionals will develop. Mm, absolutely. And, and I think like one of those things where I've noticed myself, like uh, coming from B2C into B2B in like last four or five years, I've really noticed that like there is a heavy emphasis on sales kind of makes sense <laughs> but it's very hard in those organizations to like shift that mindset into demand generation or you know brand building there's a couple of these these terms that get thrown around and i wonder like if you have some ideas on on actually how to make that shift in an organization that is really heavily focused on on sales and and you know conversion oriented uh that sort of organization like what are some things that you as a marketer can do to start making that pivot? Um, oftentimes the answer is you don't. <laughs> uh, it, it really is. There's a, a majority of B2B companies are sales companies. Um, and that has been a historical and in like 2002 or even in 2010 or probably borderline 2015 as a B2B company, you should have been a sales company. That's how you, that's how, that was the best way to go to market. Um, you should have been banging the phones. You should have been get like trying to figure out how to get MQL so that your SDRs had people to call. You're trying to get your field sales team into that meeting. When you go in, fly in person to have that meeting to close a hundred thousand dollar deal because inside sales doesn't really exist yet. Like that was the way to do it. 
Um, and then, but recognizing when there are major shifts in the market and in how your customers buy and then being able to adapt to those situations becomes a foundational critical element to long-term business success. If you don't do these things tomorrow, are you going to go out of business? Probably not. But is your customer acquisition cost going to go up over time? 100%. Is your marketing ROI going to continue to degrade over time? 100%. Um, are you going to start to lose market share? Most likely. Are you going to be vulnerable to other competitors that start to take on these strategies and then start to take your market share over time and be viewed more as a category leader? 100%. Um, and so this is really an issue in the long term for executives and business owners and shareholders um, to think about what is, if are we planning to be in business in 10 years? What's the world going to look like in 10 years? How do we how do we start at least taking baby steps toward where that's going instead of holding on to the way the world worked in 2010? Um, and so that's sort of the uh, like a decent way to explain it but it's all it truly is all rooted and the only reason that i'm here and talking about the things that i'm talking about is because i just listen to customers mm. flat out um and if you listen to customers and the way that they prefer to buy and how they want to engage sales and even look at the data of how little they engage with sales during the sales process you recognize that a majority of the buying process happens without a sales rep so if you are one-dimensional sales and the customer spends 90% of their buying process not talking to your rep and looking on the internet and consuming content and talking to key opinion leaders and getting this information in all those other ways, and you don't have content there, and you don't have relationships with those people, and you're not showing up when they go to the review site, um, that you are at a significant disadvantage. Mm. Another like big tension that well, I often encounter is is this whole idea of building a brand, uh, you know, whatever that means. But you know, looking into the future, connecting with your your audience in an emotional way, versus sales activation. And what I've seen is that it often it's very much linked to digital uh, advertising, digital marketing, where we basically are very much obsessed with trying to convert traffic based on intent signals and all that stuff. But the, the brand building stuff that is harder to measure is often targeted at broader audiences is something that is often deprioritized or just not like something for us at that certain point. So I'm, I'm wondering like uh, your take on the, the whole role of brand building in this story. So I think there is a distinct difference between brand awareness and demand creation. Brand awareness is somebody knows who you are and I can ideally connect what your company name is to what you do or the category of what you do. Where demand creation is I want to fucking buy your stuff now. Um, and so, and I think that a lot of co uh, executives and companies put a lot of things into the brand building bucket that they can't measure, that are most likely ineffective, but they don't want to have scrutinized against like actual results. So they just put them in this little bucket and say, okay, those are brand activities. Even though it looks like the data shows that it's not working, we're going to keep doing them because they're for brand. <laughs> um, and I think if we looked at it a little bit differently and had that expenditure be dr driven toward demand creation, which means getting your target accounts to want to buy your stuff, um, that the activities that go into that bucket and how we measure that bucket would change fundamentally. Um, and so I think that just shifting, just 
Is brand awareness important? Sure. Sure. Especially when you're, you know, a billion dollar in revenue company. Is brand awareness going to get you very far if a lot of people know you but don't want to buy your product and don't think it's useful and don't understand other people that are using it and all these things? It's not going to help you at a million ARR. It actually, like, it takes a long time for it to matter. And so what we need to be focused on for most of us in this room and listening to this podcast is we need to be focused on how do we get people to want to buy our stuff, um, which I've found the most effective way is through pure objective education. Here are the facts. Here are the people that use it. Here are the results that they get. Here are the differences between what you're doing right now and what you could be doing. Here's the cost every single day that you keep doing this. Like, there are some examples. I'm not uh, obviously not going to share names, but there are some examples where um, there are companies that I interact with that I'm advising that spend $250,000 a month on advertising and $25,000 a month on another agency to run lead gen strategies. We run the analysis that basically, like, I think the last one we did was 56-month CAC payback on that $275,000 a month spend. We're talking $3.5 million a year being put on this to get a 65-month CAC payback on just the advertising. And I'm looking at them saying, like, how, like, every single day that you do this, you're wasting $35,000. How how can you, and then they're like, but our contract's not up for five more months, so we're just going to let it ride. It's like, by that time, you're going to waste another $2 million. And not move and not move forward. And so, by the time you make that change, you're not even going to impact revenue for 2024. Um, and I think uh, it's really interesting how um, the the general uh, the lack of urgency and the amount of politics inside of companies that prevent the most obvious changes from happening in a swift way. Um, super interesting. But yeah, but what's uh, shifting from brand building to demand creation, I think is the mindset change that needs to happen in companies to look at that as not a throwaway, you know, expense that we don't scrutinize. Hmm. Really interesting. Like, what are some good examples of generating demand? Like, because this is something we say a lot, but it, it like, obviously, I know what you mean in terms of like, it's people getting getting them to desire to buy your product, but like, how does it look like in the real world? Maybe your own example or some other examples, just so people can wrap their heads around this. You have a deep understanding of your target customer. You have a clear, compelling sort of story around the business problem that you're solving and the cost of not solving that problem or the opportunity cost of not taking action on a new opportunity. Uh, you're able to use detailed examples. You're, you understand what their data looks like. You understand the challenges that they're having inside of the company. You're able to then talk about those things, be able for them to see them inside of their own business, then present a new different solution to, than what they've considered in the past about how to solve it, and then explain how other people, other companies like them or other you know executives like them have then taken advantage of that and then the impact that they've had over a three, six, nine, 12, whatever your timeline is have a clear and compelling sort of story on ROI from switching from one to the other um, and doing that at a high at a high frequency in a very effective way for as long as necessary until that company has a trigger in their business that then says we need to solve this which could be driven by you but oftentimes is driven by a lot of other stuff but whenever that trigger happens they immediately say we're going here um, And I think uh, a lot of B2B companies, because of their lack of patience and their desire to have an immediate metric, even if it's not anywhere close to revenue, but have an immediate metric to say, 
cause and effect, we did something and then we measured this thing directly after it, performance marketing, which can be a part of your budget, but shouldn't be how you scrutinize the whole marketing budget. Um, and the desire to have that, uh, the lack of patience then drives them to do a lot of activities that are not customer centric, that are, that are not what their customer wants, um, which is ultimately, how do we get a meeting with someone? That's basically what they're mm -hmm. doing. And then they bribe them with gift cards or they harass them on like with phone calls over the time. And you, if like there's companies that do this, that have their total addressable markets, 5,000 companies, and you got a farm of 25 SDRs trying to call 5,000 companies, you're going to annoy every single one of your target customers within three to five months. Um, and I think we just need to be a little bit more aware and a little bit more understanding of the actual process that companies take to buy and then be able to use those insights, not to be complacent, not to say, forget it, I guess because customers buy this way, we're not going to close any business, not to do that, but to use those insights to drive more revenue, to do things that our customers do want, um, to mm -hmm. lean in and be able to craft our go-to-market strategy and our business processes around what our customer wants, which ultimately will lead to better outcomes for, uh, for us or our company um, where generally right now, most go to mar most B2B companies go to market are in direct friction with how their customer wants to buy. Hmm. Uh, that's really interesting to me. And, and like, I, I think like when you mention like education, my, my thoughts often go to like these companies that are really still like educating mostly on what their product is about. And you see that very often, like, while knowing that, for example, like LinkedIn B2B Institute, they, they say that like 95% or something of companies at a given moment is not in market. So I'm wondering like in terms of educating, like what are you sharing with your audience so you can build that relationship with them for when they get that trigger that they come to you? Like how do you make sure that is broad and interesting and relevant enough so it's not just you talking about your product by understanding your customer well enough and having enough talent and expertise to actually help them and solve their problems in a way that other people can't. Like mm -hmm. when we were yeah. when we were selling products to uh, to emergency room physicians, if we just did product marketing, they weren't going to give a fuck. Like they were concerned. We sold a product that helped people that couldn't breathe breathe in the emergency room, and they're over there worried about gunshot wounds and drug overdoses and all the stuff where people are really going to die. Um, and so if we just talked about our product, they wouldn't have cared. And so what did we do? We had people, the best people that treated gunshot wounds on a webinar that then became a podcast that became social media content. We had people that treated certain types of drug overdoses and how they did it in these different techniques. And we created the content strategy around how to be the best ER physician, not how to help people breathe with our product. Um, and the same thing that I've done with my podcast over time, at first it was for demand gen people and then it became for CMOs and now it become, it's really for revenue leaders. And then there's some tactical stuff mixed in. So it can evolve. The content strategy can evolve over time as you grow as a professional, your business grows, but it has to be around your target customer being a bet, a, either a better business or a better professional, ideally both. Um, my content strategy, I think is really focused on accounts at this level, like I don't, we have a named account list. I'm not like saying that the marketing that I'm doing right now is focused on this specific account, but I understand what's going on at that type of company. And I'm communicating a message that should resonate with the CFO, the CEO, the CRO, the CMO, the demand gen person, 
because it makes sense for the business. And then smart people in the business are then able to take that information and give it to whoever is making those decisions inside of their specific company. Um, but when it comes to a content strategy overall and why people, like a lot of people, will lean on product marketing um, to typically to not a lot of success is, is because the customer insights are fundamentally lacking. Either you don't have the insights or you don't have the, the knowledge to actually help the customer based on those insights or some form of those two. Um, another thing that ends up being sort of like the general mindset um, of like, oh, if like we're on this podcast and I'm not talking about like Refine Labs case study and all this great stuff that we do and how our ad process is so much better than anyone else they're considering or what they're into. If we're not doing that, then the podcast must be a waste of time. And people think that way as well. Um, but it's not um, because what the podcast is meant to do is to educate people and to help people so that that and to do it where when they look back, even if there's something that they heard and this has happened before, I've had CMOs come to me and say, when I first heard your stuff in 2020, I thought you were full of shit. And I deeply resisted that our ebook strategy wasn't working anymore. And then it hit me almost a year later that what you were saying was right all along. And so some people will resist what, what I say. Um, and, but it's meant to educate people. And then once that CMO saw that and experienced that for herself, now she trusts me a ton. Now she listens to my stuff. Now she refers me business. Um, mm. when initially she didn't like what I was saying because it was a hard reality for her to to come to grips with at that point. And so, um, yeah, I think we just need to be, uh, to, to have the right mindset about what we're trying to do, which is help, basically help people be, I take the mindset that I'm a free, the best free consultant for any B2B company out there on this podcast. Every, every time I do an episode, that's what I try to do. Hmm. Yeah. That makes total sense. I think one thing that is like also, interesting to see or, or challenging something I've experienced and we talk about a lot with, with customers is like the fact that there's a lot of people investing in content. I think it's a, it's a given, especially in B2B SaaS that, you know, you have to create some, some content, you have to be present, you have to share something, you have to share a perspective. But I think what is like often lacking is uh, a strong distribution tactics, ways to, to reach more people than, than the echo chamber that you, you created with like your little following on LinkedIn or whatever it is. I think that's like a, a huge challenge for a lot of companies when they go to the next stage of growth is like reaching not just those like initial ICPs, but really like a broader audience. Uh, and I'm wondering like if you have some ideas on like how to improve that distribution, how to reach more people well the right people of course but a lot more people than you did initially with some basic content yeah so for first off to the statement of like uh as a company they say we need to invest in content or as a company they say we need to buy you know google ads like but almost every company is saying we need to invest in content and we need to do advertising and we need to do sdrs and the recognition is it's not about doing the thing it's about doing it well it's about it's not about how much money you invest it's about the impact of, of the money that you spend on it um and so i see a lot of people just sort of say yeah we're investing in content we spend twenty thousand dollars a month in content and think that they're doing a good job and uh as you dive in it's okay so how like what do you actually what what's the what's the strategy and 
then they make they spend ten thousand dollars on one gated PDF every quarter, and then they spend six thousand dollars for an agency to write like commodity blogs that their customer definitely doesn't care about. Like you're selling to CISOs and you're outsourcing your blog writing to a manager level marketing content manager. How are they going to write content for a CISO? Um, and then there's another element where they like have a graphic designer put together a couple of social graphics so they can post it on their organic social channel where nobody, none of their target customers see it. And this gets into your distribution. None of their target customers see it. It gets 100 likes because 100 people at the company like the post. Um, and that be, then they spend $20,000 on content, $240,000 a year, and basically get zero impact. Um, and so it's about how you spend it. And so when you think about like where, what are the key things that need to happen in this strategy and where are the key places that it breaks down? Um, the first part is that you don't understand your customers. So like, and everyone can, as I walk through this, you can analyze for yourself, where do you think it's breaking for you? Um, step, you don't understand your customers. You don't, and you can take a hard look at that because the people that I interact with, a majority of marketing people do not understand their customers, especially people that are working in demand and not product marketing. The, the, the next part, the next breaking part is that you aren't creating content that your customer actually wants to consume. So before we even get into distribution, there are a couple of key places where you could be off, right? Just mm -hmm. because you're able to put something in front of someone with an ad or it reaches them organically, if what you're saying sucks or they scroll right by it and never consume it or that type of stuff, then what's what was the point? Um, and so the second part is creating stuff that people want. And the third part is distributing that effectively in places where it actually gets consumed. The key is that it actually gets consumed, not that there was an impression, which is why I think very differently about six cents display ads versus a targeted LinkedIn ad in feed or using LinkedIn audience network compared to LinkedIn in feed. Um, and so when you look at these things, there are a couple like customer insights, black or white, like you got them or you don't. On the content side, there are things that you can do to validate that what you're doing is stuff that your customers want before you go out and spend $5,000 to promote it or boost it or syndicate it or whatever you want to do where you could create the content in a live event where 15 of your customers or your target customers show up. Did they stay for all 60 minutes for the event? Were they engaged and they asked questions? Did they actually, when you sent the recording, did they click through and they looked at it? Did they share it? Did If you had the event next week, did they show up again because it was so good that they want to come back? And if you did those types of things that when you went to the distribution, you would already have clear indicators that people like the content and that it's working. Um, most B2B companies don't make that, don't take that layer in their content creation process. They don't involve the customers in any way. They don't get the feedback. So then when they go to distribution, they are often distributing things that their customers don't care about and don't want to consume. And then they blame it on the distribution instead of the content. And they say LinkedIn ads don't work. When in reality, it's because your content sucks and what you're doing doesn't work. LinkedIn ads work. You want to go after a B2B executive and you want to get in front of them very clearly at these specific accounts, at this seniority level, at this job title, even down to this exact person, if you have your audience wide enough, that you can get to those people. The ad, the ad unit works. The question is what you put in front of that person. Um, and so got, you have to have both of those, you have to have the content 
uh, the content and the distribution connected in a way where the formula is working in both of those areas could break, break down. Um, I used to, and even back in like 2020, I, I used to say almost the exact same thing, that comp B2B companies create great content and they suck at distribution. Um, but as I've gotten smarter and wiser, I've realized that a lot of B2B companies don't create good content and they suck at dis and they don't distribute or they suck at distribution. Um, but you, you, it's recognizing that there are two parts of the equation. When people run LinkedIn ads, they are not thinking about the quality of the content. They're not. They're thinking about, am I mm -hmm. going to get a lead around out of this? Um, and so we need to, like, when we think about social advertising and demand creation activities like that, we need to be focused on is the content making an impact for our target customer, and not just mm -hmm. in like the, not just in like the, the way where it's like, oh, we just want to like help our customers. No, it's we want to help our customers understand why they should buy our stuff. Um, and so this is this is we're this is not like some fluffy thing that we're doing when you're running media or you're doing your content. You're here to make help people want to buy your stuff. You're just doing it in a different way that isn't saying, hey, come buy my stuff. So, um, yeah, rant over. No, no, no. <laughs> Super interesting stuff. Uh, one of the things that you you mentioned I want to touch upon is like you you said like a live event. Uh, like I think that's interesting, and you also mentioned that in in that video about the tenants is like this idea of getting customer insights from from the communities and like talking to people in those places or even building those places for them. I think that's like one of the things that I've seen that that's really interesting is like even physical events is a really interesting format to to learn about your customers. It's like very hard to convince people to to invest in it because it costs a lot more money than let's say just like running some some digital ads but i think it's interesting and i was wondering like if you have also experienced like any of those like non-digital channels being very interesting like events or other things to to learn more about customers but also to to build those communities yeah, I'm a, like uh, I'm looking at all available avenues to be able to influence customers and grow businesses, right? So events mm -hmm. are definitely a place. And I was the B2B marketer in 2013 that went to nine shows a year and went to there and set up our, you know, for our big shows, it was a 20, 20, 20 by 20 booth. And for our small shows, it was a 10 by 10 table. And to sit there and even in back in 2013, and you have 50 conversations and you talk to the people and you can feel it inside that this is a fucking waste of time and money. And like, you can immediately recognize that these people like, um, it's interesting just to think about like, why did companies buy booths at conferences and why did that start? And when did it start? I don't exactly know when it started, but it was definitely before I became a professional, before the internet was at maturity and scale. And the reason was because it was the only place in the world that you would have access to all of the people. It was the only way that the people could learn because there was no internet. And so they would show up at this place once or twice a year and they would listen to the people speak because there were no podcasts and they would peruse the booth because there was no internet or social media to understand what products people were building or what people were buying or things like that. So you had to go there and literally get a demo and like give them your business card and hope that they called you because you didn't, you didn't have their information or be able to contact them. And like, that was what we did in a B2B conference. And it made a bunch of sense at that time in the world to invest 
a significant amount of your marketing or business, you know, go to market budget on events for that reason. It's one of the only ways that people have researched, discovered, and evaluated products. Hmm. And we continue to have a huge level of investment in uh, trade show booths and conference sponsorships at the same level that we did in the early 2000s or the 1990s. Now, the allocation for some companies is 60 to 80% of their total marketing budget going to physical events. Um, and so it's not that we shouldn't do any, it's not, it's not that we shouldn't be 100% digital, that we should just forget anything in person. It's that we should rethink now that we have all the things available today, how are we going to use physical events to drive our go-to-market strategy and complement the other investments and things that we're doing a lot being digital? Um, and so think rethinking the actual in expenditure and what we're trying to accomplish and why we're doing it. Um, and maybe, you know, start to question whether why we go to 25 shows a year where our booths cost $200,000 for a big company and rethink how that money could be allocated, I think is a smart, uh, a smart decision. Hmm. Um, and when we think about the value of conferences, there's immense value. People are still congregating there. They spend way less time in the sessions because they can get the exact same information or better information and less biased information on their own on the internet. So they spend way less time in the actual sessions. Um, they barely go by the, the booths unless they have particular business development meetings or other things like that. But um, you just see overall way less booth traffic and way less booth interest because they can literally go on the internet and research your product and get information that they trust more than talking to your rep inside of the booth. Mm. Um, they There's dinners and satellite events and parties and networking, which is the main reason that people go there today. Um, and so if that's the main reason that people go there today, why do we need to spend $150,000 on a 30 by 20 booth that we're going to build for three days, scan some lead badges, and then tear down and never look at again? Um, it just feels like we should rethink that overall strategy. Yeah. And, and the data supports it. The data supports mm -hmm. it when we, when we run analytics for a lot of companies is that there's just a dramatic overinvestment in that specific type of event um, with uh, little measurable... ROI. Yeah. And I think that's great maybe for like the last 10 minutes because I know you have a hard stop. Is like, let's talk a bit more about ROI and data. I think it's a very important part of all of this. Like, let's say we understand our customers. We create amazing content. We distribute it into the right places. Like, what is, if it's not, if it's not, uh, the typical KPIs that, that come up because you mentioned dark social and all of these things that are hard to measure. Like, how can we actually measure the impact of this education, of this demand gen? And then also how can we, of course, convince uh, the CFO and the CEO that this is legitimately what we need to keep investing and building in? Um, I think that... Uh... B2B executives have generally been uh, sold a lie of how we evaluate the effectiveness of marketing programs. And perhaps it was the right way to look at it in 2009 or 2012, but it's definitely not applicable today, which is single channel lead gen, direct at source attribution, um, where we expect that we 
put $50 into Google or put $50 into LinkedIn and we get one lead and then we expect that out of those leads that 1% or 0.1% or 3% or whatever they put in their model will become a customer and therefore we can deem ROI at the beginning. Actually, back then they weren't even looking at uh, downstream conversion, which is what was the cost per the lead. And when you optimize for cost per lead, you end up getting way more low quality leads because the cheaper, typically the cheaper the lead, the lower the quality, the lower the conversion rates. Um, it's the only way that you are able to reach scale and volume. Um, and uh, I would like to sort of shift the conversation about how we're looking at this, where everyone is so in the micro of like, what was the ROI of our like one single campaign on LinkedIn? Or what's the ROI of this one video that we made? So in the micro of that, and to elevate it and say, what was the ROI of our entire marketing budget? And we're not at the channel level anymore. And we're not trying to debate whether Google investment was better than LinkedIn. We're looking at the whole budget. We spent $7 million a year on marketing programs. We spent $6 million a year on headcount. That's $13 million in marketing investment. What was the ROI of all of our marketing? And instead of looking at it of like, what was the ROI of all the marketing against only marketing source revenue? Let's look at the marketing ROI against entire business growth. So that would include partners because marketing investments accelerate partner revenue and marketing investments improve outbound connect rates. And so we'll look at it at the entire go-to-market against the marketing budget and the go-to-market performance and have an objective conversation about is the investment that we're putting in marketing driving business growth? And that's the number one conversation that we should be having. And if those things are in line and those things are looking good, then I think that the company should say, yeah, we're, you know, be able to have benchmarks and say, yeah, in our performance, we're at the top 20th percentile of what we're doing. So let's keep doing our podcast and that news show that we do and how we invest $500,000 in key opinion leaders in a modern influencer strategy and all that stuff that other people aren't doing because they don't think that they can measure it so micro. Let's keep doing that stuff and keep growing our business. Um, and then the companies that, you know, don't have that room, many, some that I interact with about the companies I am last, probably 25% are fucking crushing it and 75% like really need someone to tell them that they're not doing things right. Um, and when the people are doing that, right, have a hard reality that part of the reason that you're not being successful in marketing is because of the constraints that you put within marketing around your micro measurement. Um, and so, uh, just to close out, I think shifting from the micro, like super micro analytics of marketing campaigns or content or channels or programs and elevating it to what is the performance of marketing on business growth as the primary thing that we look at. Um, I think that it would spark a lot of great conversations. And I think it would drive a lot of companies to continue to do things that quote unquote, aren't measurable in their micro analytics, but clearly are driving positive, you know, business growth. And then from there, you can re-architect and redevelop new KPIs to look at leading metrics, just like you look at MQLs. You could do the exact same thing for a pod, like once proven that the podcast works, you could look at the data and be able to correlate positive business outcomes with the metrics of the podcast and start to make projections of what the leading metrics should be that are different than the ones that you use today. The key is that the program has to work before you go back and set the leading metrics. Um, but generally, that's how I think about it. I think that when we look at ROI, we should be looking at it as business professionals 
not the SEO manager's lens. I think we need to really elevate the conversation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the middle of looking back at all of the like marketing stuff we did this year, so it feels very relevant at this point to be talking. Every, everybody's about. doing it right now for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and and I think it's interesting. On the one end, I mean, I I think what you're saying makes total sense, especially when it's about like convincing you know, the, all the stakeholders of the business to keep investing in marketing in the way that you're doing it on, on the level of, let's say like an individual contributor, like trying to learn what worked and what didn't work and trying to like amplify that for like your roadmap for, for next year. It's like, I'm, I'm still looking for what are like the right signals and I know there's not a single answer for this because it depends on the format and what you're trying to do and stuff like that but I'm wondering like in in your like when you start something new let's say you've only been doing it for three months or six months you can't really evaluate that long-term thing yet like what signals are you looking at to indicate that yes let's keep moving this forward let's scale this or is it just not possible and do you need to commit to something like say a podcast for at least a year to get something out of it. Um, so first off, when you're making evaluations for demand capture, use uh, attribution software and CRM data, and you can easily understand what's working and what's not in demand capture. And for demand creation, yeah. listen to customers and a variety of different ways that you can get insights to understand what's working in demand creation and then view those as two different things where you use different signals to know what's working and what's not. Another huge misconception about demand creation or when they think about brand building is that it's a, it's a long, maybe when you think about brand building long-term because it's not really driving demand. Um, but when I started my LinkedIn content, I was getting customers within 30 days. When I started the podcast, I was getting emails and DMs and invites on a new podcast within 30 days. When I started my event, the first event we did, 19 people showed up, but then for years, hundreds of people showed up. Um, there's a misconception that these types of things need to take a long time, and they don't. Um, what, what needs to happen is that you need to be doing things that customers like, and then you get a, the first thing you get is immediate qualitative signals. People commenting in your post, sharing your DM, saying, hey, I just shared this with my whole team sending you a DM, inviting you onto their podcast, asking you to speak at the industry event. You get all these qualitative signals. Then you get a couple DMs that say, hey, what you said is interesting. I want to explore working together. Or hey, could you, you know, CEO content, that's great. Could you have set me up with your best AE so I can look at the, the product that you sell? Um, and you start to get those types of signals. Um, and so if you're six months into some of these things, and you're wondering like is things are things working or not you should be getting those qualitative signals much faster than in six months so the qualitative signals should already be coming in and they should be coming in from target customers not just random people and then in six months you should definitely have some tangible way to correlate the impact of what you're doing to business outcomes um, and if you're not able to uh, oftentimes it's because what you're the way that you're doing it isn't working not what like the it's not the podcast fault that you suck at doing a podcast. Just like I like, I don't say this to people directly because it's kind of disrespectful, but it's basically what I'm saying is like, like it's not link, it's not LinkedIn that doesn't work. It's that what you what you are personally doing on LinkedIn doesn't work. 
Um, <laughs> and so when p- people like people love to blame the channel instead of their own talent. Um, <laughs> and when it comes down to it, it's most often uh, the talent, the mindset, the consistency, the understanding of customers. Those are the reasons why people aren't being successful. It's not the channel's fault. It's not usually not how you're running the ads or things like that. Sure, there are tactical improvements to be made. Um, but uh, yeah, generally when I think about like the results of the, some of these things and I perpetuated these ideas early on, so it's generally could be looked at as my fault that people think this way, but um, it doesn't have to be long-term. Um, and when executed properly, you actually should be feeling it in the in the pretty short term. Yeah, I love that. Some Some really good, harsh truths to don't find excuses and, and really just get down to the work. I, I really appreciate that. Well, um, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Chris. I would love to pick your brain for the rest of the day, <laughs> but we'll we'll talk about that maybe later in a, in a more professional way. Amazing. <laughs> thanks All right, for being thanks on so much for having me. Appreciate you. See you soon. Bye-bye. All right, that was it for this episode. As always, I really appreciate you listening or watching the show. If you like it, please... Um, subscribe to the podcast on youtube or wherever you're listening if you're interested in learning more about brand strategy visit branding.courses and you can use the code ltb podcast to get a 20 percent discount also if you want to see the transcript for this episode you can visit letstarkbranding.substack.com and also subscribe to the email list there to get updated on any new shows or other content Thanks, take care and see you in the next episode.